Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Someone once said that the gap between the way you expect things to be and the way they are, uh, the difference between, the gap between the way you expect things to be and the way they actually are is where frustration, disappointment, and anger live. I just think about that for a moment. Actually, I remember the first time I read that, I thought, what? That's not really true. Like the source of frustration, disappointment, and anger primarily in my life is from, you know, unmet expectations. But actually, if I think about it long enough, just even in my own life and in the relationships that I have, you know, if I, uh, if I get frustrated with my kids, which, you know, you can talk to them, rarely happen, but if it does, right? It's because I expect them to treat each other a certain way because they're brothers, because they love each other. And they don't always do that. And so I get annoyed with them. I get frustrated with them. I get angry with them. I have an expectation of how they will behave to each other. Or maybe I have an expectation of how they would talk to me, their father, as the authority figure or one of the authority figures in their life, etc., etc. And when they don't, um, that, that I might be angry or frustrated or disappointed then I expect myself to act or be or be able to do certain things in a certain way. And when I don't, I have disappointment with myself. And if you think about this, actually, in in all of the relationships you have in life, this is a reality. It is an ongoing reality. It's true for every one of us. And a lot of times, this whole idea of what we expect, the reason this is such a dynamic in our lives is we don't even realize that we have expectations. We just think, well, that's what a child, how a child is supposed to behave in public. Well, that's how a boss is supposed to treat an employee. That's what a friend is supposed to do. That's what a husband is supposed to do. That's what a parent is supposed to do. It's the air we breathe. We don't even think there's some kind of expectation or even a gap in reality, and yet often we find ourselves in dealing with frustration, disappointment, with anger, and it affects our relationships. But maybe you've never thought about this, that the relationship it affects the most, maybe if I can say this, the most important relationship in our life is actually our relationship with God. That if we actually even are willing to admit 
long enough, maybe even this morning for some of you, or at some point in our relationship with God, the frustration we have with God, the disappointment we have with God, the anger we have towards God, if we're even willing to admit that that's there, and it is in all of us, is because God, often God does not act the way we expect Him to. God does not do the things we expect Him to do always. Things do not always work out in our lives with God the way that we think that they should. Many of us grew up and, and have an idea, and this is kind of a worldwide phenomenon when it comes to how human beings relate to deities or gods or, you know, sort of religious authorities or religious beings, is that if I do the things I'm supposed to do, prayer and go to the place of worship and, and help the poor, whatever it is, God's going to bless me. God's going to, I have an expectation. I do this. He does that. Um, perhaps it's just this idea of saying, well, God, because he's a certain way or because of what scripture says or because of what I was taught he is, that I just have this idea of how he's going to come through for me and how he's going to act towards me and what he's going to do for me on my behalf. And very often he does not. Things did not work out how we had hoped. And so in that gap, frustration, disappointment, anger with God, it's a reality. Now, how people have dealt with this through the, through the ages and even around the world in different religions is to say, well, look, uh, some will say, well, that's God is going to be God. You can't, you can't have any expectations. That's just who, what God does. There's maybe even a little bit of a fatalism or a deterministic kind of view and saying, well, human beings, I mean, we are, you know, sort of ants drowning in a, in a puddle of rainwater. Like that's, that's how we are to God. Like, well, who are you to say this should or shouldn't happen? And that's just the way God is. You don't have any control over that. So why think about it or why be frustrated or disappointed? But that actually won't do for us as followers of Jesus, because what we find is in uh, the teachings of Jesus and through his life, he was constantly inviting people actually to come close to him as God in the flesh. He was inviting people to be in relationship with him, to come close to him. And yet, as you know, the foundation of every relationship is trust. And yet because of some of our frustration, disappointment, and anger with God, maybe we experience distrust where he did not act or behave in a way that we expected him to. And so we live in this tension of realizing, wait, Jesus is actually inviting us to come close, to be in a, a close, trusting relationship with God where we experience forgiveness and grace and love and purpose and meaning and intimacy. And yet... We struggle because God continually and often does not do what we expect him to do. And so how, what do we do with it? How do we resolve that tension? The reason we're talking about this right now is because we are turning our attention in the next four weeks to uh, the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, which traditionally in the history of the church has been called the season of Lent. It actually began a little a week and a half ago. And, um, you know, there may be many words or ideas that, the, uh, that Lent um, sort of brings up in your mind but uh, about things you give up or whatever. But at its heart, the season of Lent, whether you grew up practicing or not, maybe you didn't realize this, is primarily a season that is meant, it's a 40-day season, it's meant to slow us down so that we would have the time and the space and the ability to contemplate the life and particularly the death leading up to the resurrection of Jesus as we lead up to Easter weekend. 
And one of the things we're doing over these next four weeks is looking at the final scenes or some of the final words of Jesus' life as he began to turn towards um, Jerusalem, which became the place of his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and ultimately his resurrection. And so we're taking these uh, four weeks to go over these final words, these final scenes, and saying these were the most important words Jesus said as he was preparing for his final days. And the story that we're going to look at today that was read for you in Scripture is really a story in two parts. The two parts seem to have nothing to do with each other, and yet they are so interconnected. And it's probably sort of what um, commentators would say is kind of the beginning story or the the turning point story as Jesus moves towards what has traditionally been understood, his passion or his suffering and his death. And it is a story about unmet expectations. Um, It it begins with Jesus, uh, for for much of his life and teaching and ministry, he was outside what we would call Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem, consider Jerusalem not just the capital city of Israel at that time, but the center of sort of Jewish religious, political, and social, and economic life. And so everything important, everything significant happened in Jerusalem. Everything outside of Jerusalem was considered unimportant. In fact, the people who lived outside Jerusalem were kind of considered foreigners by, you know, if you were anybody important, if the, if the center of Jewish political life and faith and all of that, anything outside of that was considered sort of you're a foreigner. And so we find, interestingly, Jesus, most of his teaching, most of his healing and miracles and activity um, is recorded have happening outside of Jerusalem in a place called Galilee. Uh, which was sort of a, a back, well, not a, yeah, I guess it was kind of a backwater town. And it was a town with a mixed group of people of ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, the people are traveling to and from that. And so most of what Jesus has been doing has been outside of this. And, and yet, at this point in the story, he begins to move towards Jerusalem. And he makes a hundred mile journey with his disciples. And in fact, when you say disciples, we're not just thinking kind of the 12, as you may have been familiar with or not, but a whole group of people who were following him, because that's what disciple means, to follow Someone. And so they were following Jesus. And as he's going, he's making the 100-mile journey over many, many days. And he's stopping in towns where he's done miracles and taught. He's collecting a group of followers. And so now there's several hundred people are approaching Jerusalem. And it's a 100-mile journey. And at the last two miles of the journey, something really interesting, and if I can say this, unexpected happens. And this is what we read. As they, as the whole group of followers and Jesus' disciples, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. So now just pause for a moment. Mount of Olives would have been up, kind of two miles up above Jerusalem. And so kind of coming down towards the city. Jesus sent to his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road as well. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed, those in front and those behind, shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest of heavens. Now, this is such an interesting, I mean, at first glance, it sort of seems like, okay, this is this story. But what is going on here? Um, In fact, we see Jesus in the last two miles of this hundred mile journey, as he's entering Jerusalem, coming down the mountain from the Mount of Olives. um, If I can say this, pulls a stunt. Like he orchestrates something. Um, 
first of all, it's bizarre that they would that he would suddenly need a donkey for the last two miles of a hundred mile journey. Everybody's walking, he's walking. In fact, we have no other account in Jesus' life where he was riding a donkey. He was always walking with his disciples. Um, and yet he says to them, okay, this last two miles. He says to the disciples, go ahead of you to this town. Clearly, there was a prearranged, the rest of the text indicates there was someone he had talked to already who had a donkey who was going to give it to him. And so he's prearranged this donkey ride down the hill. And so here's what you have to think. So there's this whole crowd of people, hundreds of people. Jesus then is going to elevate himself. He's going to sit on this donkey, so he'll be above the crowd, and they're going to be coming down the mountain, which for two miles would have been visible for many miles around heading into Jerusalem. And, and this was something, and, and it's quite actually out of character in Jesus because all the rest of the Gospels, we see him downplaying um, and kind of telling people to be quiet when they want to crown him king or, or make much of his name or what he's doing. He's always avoiding the spotlight. Here, he seems to be putting himself right in the center and the crowd doesn't miss it. Um, like, Look at this. It says, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. He who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Son of David was a, was a royal title. And so Jesus is elevating himself on this donkey coming into the city and the whole crowd recognizes, oh, we know what this is. And they start shouting and screaming and they're shouting regal kind of things. In other words, this is our king. Now, why were they doing Why did they react like that? You actually have to know a little bit of Jewish history because 170 years before, a man named Judas Maccabeus rode down that same hill on a war horse with an army into Jerusalem because Jerusalem at the time had been overtaken by um, the uh, Syrian Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes. He had actually taken over the temple, which was kind of the center of Jewish life, had put up an, uh, an idol to Zeus and was allowing worship to Zeus, had sacrificed a pig on the altar, which was an unclean animal. And so it was this, it was this act of sort of political and religious aggression and dominance over the Jewish people by the Syrian Greek king who was now occupying Palestine. And so Judas Maccabeus, this sort of um, political and religious activist on behalf of his people, representing an entire nation, rode into Jerusalem 170 years earlier with an army and took back the temple. And it became uh, one of, it, it actually is what they celebrated Hanukkah because it became one of the most, if not the most significant Jewish holiday. Why? Because it was a rescue of their faith and of their political and their religious and their social independence from, from their oppressor. And so that had happened 100 seven years before on this same thing. And now there's this new leader because there's a new empire, a new oppressor, Rome, who was even brutal than the three empires before them. And there was no uh, Israel, uh, Jewish king in, in Jerusalem at the time. It was occupied by the Romans and ruled by the Romans and the Roman oppression was brutal. And so here comes Jesus who clearly has been establishing himself, at least among these people, as a miracle worker, as someone with authority and power to teach and seems to be like is raising the dead, you know, has a kind of power and authority they've never even seen before. And now as he's entering Jerusalem, everything that they had expected and hoped for seemed like it was coming true. And so he, it kind of looks like he's establishing himself as king as he's riding in and they get exactly what's happening. They're like, yes, yes, this is what we hope for. This is what he's going to do. He's going to be our king. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to stick it to them now. 
we're going to make Israel great again, <laughs> right? And we could laugh, but like, honestly, the, the oppression under Rome was brutal. They were longing for, looking for, desperately needing a king, someone who would rule again and bring them back, who would bring back their religion, bring back their ethnic identity, bring back their life again. And so Jesus coming in, it looks like that's what he's doing. It's what they expect. And yet the story is laced with uh, several unexpected things. First of all, he's riding a donkey, not a war horse. It's a donkey. It's sort of a humble animal. It's a beast of burden. Uh, you don't ride a donkey into battle. Um, he has no uh, you know, military with him, no army. And in fact, the people he has, all of this crowd of people... Um, they weren't people of much influence, importance, or strength. They certainly weren't a trained army by any stretch, but neither were they important people. Remember, they were Galileans. They were mostly people outside of the center of Jewish life. They were considered foreigners. They were considered people who had no influence, no importance. It was a ragtag group that Jesus was. So this is not looking like any sort of organized, well-to-do, well-equipped, well-funded army that's going to come and take back Jerusalem. And in fact, he's met with resistance. It says that as this crowd is coming in and shouting, it says in the text, all of Jerusalem was stirred. And, and you need to understand that, that the idea there is kind of upset and indignant. And they say, who is this man? Who's this guy? Who's this guy? Who's this? Like they see all of these weird mixed bag of people kind of cheering this guy coming in on a donkey and Jerusalem, who supposedly was going to welcome him as king. And, and because he was their savior, he was their king, looked at him and said, who's this? Who's this guy? There was just kind of resistance. And so all the way through the story, it's actually not what they expect or hope for at all. Um, and it's kind of laying their groundwork to saying, maybe what you're thinking is different than what Jesus is thinking. Now, that's actually the first half of the story. And, and if they weren't quite sure what Jesus was actually meaning and they thought there might be some unmet expectations and some differing ideas of what was going to happen, it gets even worse for them. It's the second half of the story. Jesus... As he comes into Jerusalem in Matthew's account, he goes right to the temple. Now, this would have been, again, a good sign for them because when Judas Maccabeus rode in 107 years earlier, he went right to the temple. He went to take it back, to kick butt, to take names, to take over. And maybe they thought, and, and, and here's what you need to know at Passover time, which is Jesus was coming in. There was usually about 30,000 people in the city of Jerusalem on a regular basis. During Passover, it went up to 180,000. So think about that. The city swelled to six times its normal population. I mean, imagine our, the city you're living in or the city of Toronto or the GTA going six times the population for a week. I mean, you couldn't handle it. And they, people would camp out in the streets and all that. And the temple, which was like a 34-acre sort of area, was full of people. It would, would have been the busiest place in the busiest city at that time in Palestine. And so Jesus goes right for the temple and they're thinking, oh man, he's got a killer sermon ready. Like he's going to drop the mic. He's going to rile this crowd up. Okay, maybe he doesn't have enough people here, but if we get the whole of Jerusalem, 180,000 people amped up, to, we could actually take back um, our city tonight. We could do this. He's going to do this. He's going to go to the religious leaders. He's going to get everybody together. That's why he's going to the temple. And again, Jesus does something they don't expect. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. 
That's something you need to know is going on in the temple courts. Because it was Passover time and part of Passover was uh, sacrificing animals and people were coming from hundreds of miles away, they weren't going to be carrying animals in with them. So they had to buy animals. So they buy them at the temple. Not only that, the temple had its own currency. So they had to bring whatever currency they were using from where they and change it. So you got money changers, you got people selling animals in order that people can worship their God. This is what's happening. And Jesus comes into that place and instead of telling everyone they're going to, he's the king and they're going to take back the city from Rome and they're going to reestablish themselves. He starts making a mess in the temple. He starts turning stuff over. It's sort of a, a political action to get their attention. And he would have had the attention of everybody and the religious leaders. And again, instead of him saying, you know what? We're going to fix your problems. We're going to rescue you from Rome. He says something different. He says, this is my house. And Rome is not the ones, the foreign leaders, these other people who have messed it up. You have. You. My house will be called the house of prayer, but you have made a mess of it. You have actually squeezed God out of this place. You've made this a den of robbers. You've filled it with things that don't belong to God. And I'm telling you, it's got to go. One of the interesting things you'll find in this text is Jesus is doing all this alone. Ain't no crowds around anymore. Nobody shouting at this point. Why? Because they don't want to be a part of this. He, he was actually doing something. They, were like, they would have been like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't get the religious people upset with you. Don't get the religious leaders. What do you mean there's something wrong with what we're doing? Rome is the problem. Rome is the enemy. You got to fix stuff out there. And Jesus is like, no, no, we got to fix stuff in here. See, he, he, he never actually did what they wanted him to do. They wanted him to be aggressive and assertive and powerful when it came to dealing with Rome and riding in as a king and on a war horse and an army. But he was humble and meek and eventually became powerless. And then when he should have been sort of influential and kind and working the system, he was aggressive and assertive and powerful and condemning of the religious leaders. And they were saying, no, 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 Jesus, back off. Don't do that. Don't say that. Don't get them upset with you. Jesus, this is no way to be king. This is actually going to get you killed. And that's exactly what happened. We know even in this moment, in this interaction, the things that Jesus said were the final straw for the religious leaders. And they said, this guy cannot be trusted. This guy is a threat to us. He needs to go. And within a few days... This same Jesus was hanging on a Roman cross with the mocking sign above him, King of the Jews. And the crowds that had shouted to support him were nowhere to be found. Why? Because this is not what they had expected. This was not what a king was supposed to do. This was not the kind of leader. He was supposed to overthrow Rome, not be overpowered by Rome. It was not at all what they expected. And it was a turning point that eventually got him killed. Now, 2,000 years later, you and I are a long way from donkeys and prophecies and um, revolts and temples and Roman occupation. Um, but these two stories highlight something that is as real and as true in our lives as it was 2,000 years ago. 
See, the reality is this, that as Jesus comes close to us, we have all kinds of expectations for what he will do and how he will work. And if I can say it this way, we want Jesus to rule everything around us out there and deal with what's out there. But he actually wants to clean house, our house. What I mean by that? Well, the scriptures actually tell us that the temple is here, that we, you and I, are the temple of God, that God lives in us that our hearts, the center of ourselves, this is where God comes to us. This is where we find and encounter God, that we are the new temple. There's no specific place of worship or holy building that we ourselves, individuals and collectively as the church, are the holy building, as the people, that we are the place where God wants to dwell and meet with us and encounter us and come close to us. And if Jesus is actually going to be king, even though we want him to be king over all of the problems, and Jesus, deal with my boss and deal with that person you know, in my life, who's in my family, who's making things difficult for me, and, and they're actually the issue, and they're the reason I'm angry, and they're the reason I'm disappointed, and they're the reason I'm frustrated, or Jesus, why can't you fix this problem? Why can't you provide for us that we want Jesus to be king and to rule over those things, but he's actually coming close and saying, no, I want to clean your house. I want to clean house. There's something on the inside of you that needs to be fixed, that needs to be changed. And again, this is not what we expect him to do. It's not what we want him to do. It's not what we think he needs to do. We're like, Jesus, you need to deal with those things. The real problems in my life is that person or that boss or the, or the lack of friends that I have or what's going on at school or what's going on in my home or what's going on in that neighborhood or what's going on with my spouse or the lack of spouse. That's the problem. That's what you need to fix. And Jesus is coming close and saying, no, no, we begin. We begin. The revolution begins with you, with me from the inside out, that he starts to do his work, his, his transformation, not out there, he starts in here. See, this is a picture of actually what Jesus wants to do and needs to do. And let's be honest, we don't want any part of that. We want him to fix those things out there. We get threatened when he comes close and says, well, what about that thing? Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what's going on inside you. Forget your spouse. Forget what's going on at work. Forget what's going on at school. Forget what things you wish and need to be better and prettier and more powerful and more athletic or whatever. Let's talk about what's going on inside the house, in the temple. Because Jesus is making a beeline for our hearts, and we find it difficult, even threatening. So why would we let him do that? Why would we let Jesus make a beeline for the center of our hearts to begin to clean up what's on the inside. Well, if you read on in the passage, you find out even though this beginning of him turning over the table, just the beginning of cleaning the house, he didn't clean up the whole temple. It was, it was miles and miles wide and deep, but he began. And even as he begins to do that, look what happens. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. This is right after he starts to clean. And the children were shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. You know what happened when Jesus started to clean house? Healing and joy returned. Healing and joy. Jesus cleaning house, Jesus cleaning the temple, paved the way for healing to return and joy. Again, that's what children shouting for joy. That's, that's the symbol of joy. And that's why it's worth it for you and I to let Jesus come close enough 
to begin to deal with the stuff on the inside of us, the dark corners, the shut up rooms, the places we're hiding from ourselves and from each other, the things that in our lives that we've ignored or just wish would go away, but have never really dealt with all of the stuff on the inside of us that's coming out on the outside. Why would we let him begin to do that and begin to clean house? Why? Because when he does, healing and joy return. And so here's what I want you to do in light of all this. What, what does this mean? If that's, if that's the true reality of what Jesus wants to do, we may expect him and want him to do all kinds of other things out there, but his primary goal at the beginning is to begin to change us from the inside out, to go right to the temple, right to the center of where God wants to live and dwell in your life and in my life and begin to clean up so that this place can be a place of prayer again and a place of healing and a place of joy. Here's something I, I think all of us can do. It's not easy, but I actually feel no um, reluctance to challenge you to do it because I want, for my life and your life, I want healing and joy to return. And so here's what I want you to do. Ask someone close to you, and I'd say someone who's safe, what's the messiest or most out of order place in my house? You know what I mean by that? Like you know me well enough, ask someone who's close to you who knows you well enough, be honest with me. What's the part of my house on the inside of me that you see, that you know, you become aware of because you're close enough to me, that's a bit of a mess? That's out of order? Is it my anger? Like, is it the way I, I have outbursts of anger? Is it my insecurity that's constantly cropping up in the way that I handle relationships? Is it my obsession with what other people think of me? Is it my, my overwork, my drivenness in everything I'm doing? Is, is it a way that I, that I keep going from one relationship to another, you know, kind of leaving a, a trail of broken relationships? Is it that, you know, nobody really is allowed to get past the surface in my life? Is it some addiction that you see to like shopping or gossip or substances or whatever? Like ask someone who's safe, but is close enough to you to know and say, yeah, I think if you ask me honestly, I think that part, that's a messy corner. That's a, that's a place in your house that's out of order, that's in disarray. That's a door, an old room that's locked up and musty and there's no sunlight in there. Every one of us can ask this question. Every one of us has stuff in there. And the reason you ask it is to begin to say, okay, wait, if it can be seen by someone who's close to me and loves me, Jesus knows about this too. And it's a place where we begin to say, okay, Jesus, I want you to come close. I want you, okay, I'm going to let you come into that. I'm going to let you clean. I need you to clean that part of it. I'll forget and leave all the other stuff out there that I want you to fix and I wish you would do and all of that kind of stuff. I will let you come and begin to deal with the mess in here and to begin to clean it up. I will seek help. I will confess. I will pray to you. I'll invite you in. I will invite someone else to say, okay, help me let Jesus clean this place. I will open myself up to that so that healing and joy can return to my life again.